0: Another way love bombing can happen is they will present a very overly victimized story of their lives. Like, Mm. my life has been so hard. Mm. My life has been so tough. And rescuers will say, oh my gosh, you need a place to live. Come move in with me. Or you need a car. Like, I don't always use my car. Covert narcissists tend to play that game a little bit more. Very victimized love bombing. And people feel like, I want to rescue them. And they really do well with people who are hyper empaths. But then what will happen is they'll start losing a little steam. You're like, okay, I'm into you and you move things too fast. Narcissistic relationships more often than not move too fast. People move in too fast. They get engaged too fast. They talk about marriage too fast. They travel together too fast. They move to another city too fast, too fast. And why? Because the narcissist needs to get you to the point where they can devalue you. Once you agree to them, they have, believe it or not, such low self-esteem, like if you wanna be with me, you can't be all that, is actually probably what's happening deep inside of them. But what they have you is they have you where they need you.
1: This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home and the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm Pretty Intense. There's a very special guest on the show today. Her name is Dr. Romani. She is an expert in the field of narcissistic personality disorder and NPD, narcissists, narcs, whatever you want to call them. It's something that I think is a really important topic to bring to light uh, because there's so much damage that's done um, with this personality disorder and this form of abuse. And so it may be something that happened in childhood. It might be a relationship. It might be at the workplace, but to understand truly what it is and how to deal with it, I think are incredible tools because it's undoubtedly happening in your life. And I mean, you, as in like every single person listening has some level of exposure to narcissism and sometimes many, um, it tends to be a, tends to be an attractor for people that are empaths and very kind hearted. This is a really, really deep conversation about all the forms of narcissism, the, uh, forms of abuse of narcissism, the cycle, of abuse and and then what, what we can do about it what you can do about it i think that this is a a really i think this is a really healthy conversation about something very unhealthy so i hope you get a lot from it and i hope that you're well take care i i feel like there's so much narcissism around and mm-hmm. that it's not until you have really experienced it that mm-hmm. you know what to look for yes. or know the repercussions of it even. And so I think this is just such a good conversation to have because uh, you know, as you said, like being in racing and being in a male dominated world and especially competitive, highly competitive, I mean, yeah, it was probably all around me and now I can look back and see it, but I couldn't see it while I was in it because I didn't really have that firsthand experience of what it's like, but it's truly like, it's, 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 it's obvious once you've had the experience. So I, I, I just think this is such an incredible conversation to have for people to get some awareness.
0: So your point, you know, is that a lot of people don't understand it until it happens to them. That's really the struggle because b- believe it or not, even in this modern world, there's some people out there where it hasn't happened to them or they're so good at justifying it that they don't want to see it. Right. And so when a person who's going through it actually turns to maybe a friend who doesn't get it, they'll often get pushback and people say, oh, you know, that's just how they are. They're just intense. And This is not about intense. This is about something so abusive that cuts you to the core. It's an entirely different experience. And once people understand it, the only thing I've ever wanted for people is to not blame themselves because that's what people do in these relationships. They blame themselves and say, maybe I'm not trying hard enough and maybe I'm not this enough and maybe I'm not that enough. So you're doing your part. You're being abused. You decide how you want to proceed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of it comes down to for me that I can look at and go, I never had boundaries. And so mm-hmm. like when you don't have boundaries and you're a kind, loving, compassionate caretaker, all of a sudden you become just like it's just you can't see through the see, see through it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you got uh, how you evolved into uh, this place and speaking about narcissism mm-hmm. like you do. Did you have an experience or is this just a progression of your profession?
0: It's a lot of different things. I mean, initially, it really started from a very professional place. I'm, a, I'm a pro- also a university professor, I was doing research on it. And I was saying, why are some of the people coming into a clinic we were working with, they are, they, this, I said, this small group of patients is taking everybody's attention and energy. And, you know, so this small group of patients was getting 90% of the nurses and the staff's attention and everyone else was actually a really nice compliant client patient, they weren't getting, I'm saying, gosh, these people are breaking these people down. And that led to a program of research on this. But at the same time, I'm also a psychologist in practice. And more and more people were coming in and telling me the same story of their marriages and also were saying, I was in therapy, and I worked on communication. And they were really nice, clearly communicating people. I said, oh, this is what it sounds like. And once they understood narcissism, honestly, sometimes in six to eight weeks, they're like, okay, got it. Some would go ahead and get divorced. Some would set boundaries. And a lot of them stopped blaming themselves. It wasn't always that quick. Sometimes it would take months or years. So there's a whole range. And yeah, it has happened to me. And it's ironic because even in my own life, I knew it was toxic. I knew it was unhealthy, but I probably about 10, 15 years ago, I really started getting into this work. And then um, and what I noticed was there's a huge hole in the world of mental health. Nobody wants to talk about it It kind of feels not nice like as a psychologist. We're supposed to be warm and fuzzy with everyone I said I am never. And I have worked with a lot of narcissistic patients That's what's interesting probably a third of my practice and so and I do great work with them but I can see I don't know that I want to be in a relationship with them, but I want to help them understand their impact on others and they themselves were having a tough time too, but I don't care if you're having a tough time, you don't get to take it out on other people. So it was a, it was a, it was a mix of research, clinical interest, and, and my personal stuff, and it all came into this. And then nobody cared, Danica, to be honest with you, they didn't care until they cared. And it was really probably in the last five years in this country, things switched, the world sort of changed, we became more polarized. And when that happened, this word started floating out there much more at a public level, And then again, people started listening. I think I was talking to myself for about 10 years before people started listening.
1: So it was all good. So do you think that narcissism is being revealed more now or it's on the rise due to a level of polarization? I don't know
0: if it's literally on the rise. I think a little bit. Things like social media, the ability to behave badly on the internet, the kinds of people we sort of idolize in our society really are often the noisy bullies. And we idolize people with a lot of money. And narcissistic people always have more money. And so if you say, I want to be a billionaire in today's day and age, and more often than that, saying, I want to be a narcissist. So it's the people we value. We don't value a teacher who knocks herself out to help kids who are having trouble learning. That's not our hero. Our hero is the person who has the jets and the rockets and all this nonsense. So part of it is what we value in our society. But I think what's happening too is that Now that we, I think for a long time, people tolerated this behavior. They're like, that's just someone being intense. That's just boys being boys. That's just somebody being difficult. Or there's two sides to every story. I mean, I've heard every rationale for this. And I've worked with people who stayed in these marriages for 40 plus years. So they've heard all the rationales for a long time. And they almost had to go with the rationale if they were going to stay in the relationship. So I actually think this pattern has always been around. But I think we found huge ways of justifying it. And now people are saying enough. You can't bully people at work. You can't. This is not okay. It's actually taking a real toll. And it's the toll on people that it takes that's very much a focus on my work, which is if you bully people and gaslight people and manipulate people enough, you're actually going to you're making them sick. And that's the piece I wanted to address.
1: Mm, I agree. Is there, before we get on to all that, because uncovering all the tactics and Mm -hmm, ways that could be like, someone could be listening and be like, oh my God, that's me. Cause that's Mm -hmm. like, I like read one that was like the top 10. I was like, oh my God, it's like a solid, like one, like nine out of 10 for sure. I was like, oh my God, I'm pretty sure this is an A. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra. One of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at Um But um, is there a healthy, I mean, cause you know, we, you say things like if you're successful, if you have the jets or if you make mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, presumably I could fall into that category to some mm-hmm. degree. So mm-hmm. is there, is there, uh, is there a, a healthy um, level of code of narcissism or is there an assumed level of narcissism to everyone and it is truly a scale.
0: So let's not call it narcissism and let's call it that, because I hate the term healthy narcissism because I think at the core of it, this pattern of narcissism, the lack of empathy, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the contempt for other people, the validation seeking, the superficiality, the you know, the the lashing out at other people, being arrogant and controlling and sensitive to criticism and hypocritical. I don't think that's ever healthy, right? I do think people can become successful without those qualities. I think it is a bit more of an exception than a rule, to be honest with you, but I absolutely think it can happen. And I've met and worked with people who are extraordinarily successful and deeply empathic, and they managed to make it work often because they had a gift, like they were very good at the thing they did. And so because of that, they were able to succeed. But I think the people who had to sort of scrap and manipulate and work the system, that's a little bit more problematic. So I think that what some of us may have is healthy assertiveness, um, healthy uh, competition. So the idea that I'm going to compete this fair and square, I'm going I'm to put in the best effort I've got and I'm going to win this race clean. And then I am going to then celebrate the, the, that winning and be strategic. It's the idea of that for a narcissistic person, they may not win the race clean, and then they will throw other people under the bus once they win or on their way to winning. So there's a difference.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So what causes it? I mean, this is very fascinating. And I mean, at the end of the day of all the work that I've done, especially in the last year, like I have realized only more and more how it really, it's all childhood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> it comes mm-hmm, from yeah. the beginning. And so mm-hmm. what what is it, what dynamics uh, Mm -hmm. lead to a narcissistic existence and, you know, emotional state or lack of emotion?
0: Well, here's where it gets tricky is that narcissism is one of those destinations that a person can, that different people can get through, through different pathways. And some of those pathways are more tragic. And some of those pathways are actually almost more a little bit Not so tragic, I guess, is the only way I could put it. At the most tragic end of it, Danica, would be thinking about somebody who actually might have had a relatively chaotic, abusive, traumatic childhood. And because of that, they may not have been able to form healthy attachments during their early years. In the absence of those healthy attachments, they had to grow all these unhealthy sort of patterns like a defense against all of that vulnerability. And so they're always punching at the world, they're sort of angry at the world. And in a way, if you think of them as a small traumatized child, we can think of why they're angry at the world, which is why sometimes narcissism and post-traumatic stress has a fair amount of overlap. So there's that group, okay, then there's a group of people who have attachment issues And it wasn't, frankly, traumatic in the family of origin, but it might have been a bit inconsistent. The parents might have been narcissistic themselves or totally self-focused or all about them and their appearances and their lives and their stuff. And their kids were sort of almost an annoyance and they weren't really available to them. And these are households where emotion would have been devalued or even shamed. So there's that pathway, which... Some people could even listen to this and say, you know, Dr. Romani, I'd actually argue that's a little bit traumatic, too. And I don't disagree with that. But I'm not talking about almost like the Frank physically sexually abusive. But yes, this can be traumatizing as well. But it's sort of there's an emptiness to the childhood. So you get to go on great vacations and, you know, pretty Thanksgivings and all of that. But there's sort of an emptiness to it. And the parents are really egocentric and focused on themselves. Then we get to the sort of what I call sort of the performing pony kind of model of narcissism, where people are really raised because they're one trick ponies. They're raised because they're great at a sport. They're great at, they're really beautiful. They're, they're the kid that the parent gets narcissistic supply from. So the parent almost invests so much in that kid. These are kids who go into performing. Kids are just great at something, but the kid almost gets the message, We love you because you are so great at this. Not like I have this great kid I love and they happen to have these other interests. The parents almost overly intrude themselves into the child's life. And the child's identity gets totally wrapped in this thing they do rather than who they are. And they retain that performing poniness all the way into adulthood. They focus only on achievement, and they never learn emotion. In fact, these are kids if they're in, for example, something competitive, their parent will be like, why'd you do so bad? What was that about? And the poor kid just wants their parent to say, that's okay, like this is just a game, I love you. That sort of thing can also go into narcissism. And then there's other things in the family, like having a narcissistic parent In most cases, it doesn't result actually in a narcissistic child. In most cases, having a narcissistic parent results in having an anxious child. But in a subset of cases, that can happen. But we're really talking about issues around attachment, around emotional regulation, how much the child learns to um, regulate their emotions, the less of that they're taught, the more likely they are to become narcissistic, and then how narcissistically the parents behaved. You know, like maybe not the parents weren't full-on narcissists, but they were super entitled. They were, you know, really sort of rude and controlling. That can also raise the odds. But like I said, just as often, if not more, children who grow up with that kind of parent end up becoming more anxious than they are to become narcissistic. So you can see there's a lot of pathways that can get you there. And as a psychologist, I can tell you, when I see the narcissistic people who came via the traumatic route, they look a little different than the ones who came from more that performing pony. The parents only cared about how things looked, but they didn't care about who their kids were. They're different. They feel different to me as a psychologist, and they probably. But I have to say, for a person in a relationship with with either of these groups, it's going to be difficult. There's no getting away from that.
1: You had touched on this, and it's a it's a it's a question that I have. Um, is Codependency, because anxious, could maybe presumably be sort of pushed into the codependent side. Is that accurate?
0: So let's talk a little bit about codependency, because it's a tricky term. Because here's where it gets interesting. Let's talk first about anxiety with narcissism, and then this thing called codependency.
1: In the heart of Napa Valley lays somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The somnium vineyard estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly.
0: A lot of people think because narcissists are so braggy and grandiose and look how great I am, that they think that they must be confident. And they're actually less confident than the rest of us because they're so braggy. Like you wouldn't be bragging. Like if you're great, you're like, oh, thanks so much. And just what I do and I practice and whatever, but. The folks who really, really have to put on the big grandiose shows of look at me, I'm wonderful. There's a deep, deep insecurity and frankly, a deep anxiety that underlies that. And the anxiety is very much about they're going to really some and it's not like it's conscious, like at a deep level, there's the sense of I'm not perfect. Somebody's going to see I'm not perfect. I'm going to get rejected and worse, I'm going to be shamed. And that constant fear of that means that the minute somebody critiques them, they completely lose their minds, they go completely rageful, they throw a huge tantrum, everyone either is scared of them or what the heck, and then they feel ashamed of that reaction, and then that makes them mad again, and that's why you're constantly in these sort of anger cycles with narcissistic people. So that's where the anxiety piece is on the narcissism side. A lot of people who end up in relationships with narcissistic people, have the tendency to call themselves codependent. And I always say to them, put the brakes on, because I'm always a little afraid of that label. Because what codependency implies is also a, I don't want to say a deficit, but like a, a not, like a, a vulnerability and a not getting it. Like a, a codependent person is almost, you know, completely unaware, clueless, call it what you will. In my work in narcissistic abuse, I I wouldn't disagree that there's a subset of people who might fall more into this sort of codependent, I have to prove myself for love, I have to earn love, I'm going to stay with the broken person and rescue them, I get my self-esteem out of how well my partner's doing. I don't disagree there's a subset. But I have to say, Danica, a lot of people I've worked with who wrote themselves off as codependents, And then I just basically did some basic education on narcissistic abuse. I said, are you telling me this person is not going to change? I said, honey, I'm telling you this person is not going to change. And I said, that is all I needed to hear. And they really do kind of pop out of it. Either they say, I'm just going to cultivate a life outside of this relationship or I'm getting out. To me, that doesn't feel like codependency. To me, that feels like a lack of knowledge. They just didn't know. I think some people, even after they know, they still keep going in like a moth flying into a flame. That would feel more like the codependency piece.
1: Is there is the original wound of I'm sort of making a, I'm giving you my words or my interpretation, mm-hmm. but it being a, essentially abandonment of emotion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is 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 the is that core wound the same for a narcissist as a codependent, but the reactions are different. It's possible,
0: you know. It's an interesting area because, like I said, codependency is sort of a it's sort of a we know probably a little bit more nar- about narcissism than we do about codependency. and It's not something we actually formally recognize in kind of the world of psychology. If anything, codependency might be viewed as more of a dependent personality style. But like I said, once the person with the dependent personality style, style gets the playbook, they're like, oh, OK, I get this now. Thanks. Do I think the core wound It may be quite similar? Because what we often forget is that people who are narcissistic are really afraid of abandonment. It's a big thing for them and they get really rageful when they think it's coming up and they get really scared that it might come up because it's a rejection of them, which is already bringing up all that shame. A person who is in a sort of would be classified under the sort of umbrella of codependency, you know, would also have that same fear of sort of losing the identity they get through sort of being in this in this very unhealthy relationship. Codependent people, when they're in unhealthy relationships, it almost gives them something to do and a place to derive, like I said, a sense of self. If they were in a healthy relationship, it would almost feel boring. You know, like, what do I do with myself? You're helping and you're being nice and you're being empathic and you're encouraging me. Like, it's as though when we're looking at what are called codependent, sometimes it's also called trauma bonded, though they're a little bit different. It's this, you keep having the same arguments over and over again. It's almost like it's relaxing, even though it feels like it's this. It's, there's something familiar about the argument. And so I do think there are similar core wounds. The difference being that sometimes the codependence correction is this hyper empathy, almost to an unhealthy level, where they're being empathic to the point where they're throwing themselves under the bus.
1: It also feels like and i don't know i don't know why we know more about narcissism than codependency necessarily but one thing does seem to be true is that an, a codependent seems to be able to say i have codependency issues correct and so a narcissist is, right. doesn't have the ability to yeah. say oh gosh i am a narcissist so why can't they why is it this invisible dark passenger mm-hmm. with them so-
0: there you speak to a huge difference between people who have these high conflict personality styles like narcissism and people who don't. So when people have, the, the word is antagonism. So when people have these antagonistic personality styles like narcissism, one of the things that they don't have is a self-reflective capacity. And self-reflective capacity is how to be able to think about how is my behavior affecting other people how how do my words affect other people so you stop before you speak right so you don't just start screaming in the middle of a room or you don't wake someone up in the middle of the night and start yelling at them there's uh, there's no self-reflective capacity so as a result there's very little ability to and it's a p- big piece of empathy to reflect on how you affect other people for a narcissistic person to be vulnerable enough to say ah you know i'm i'm this i'm i'm I have this wound or I have this insecurity, that is very shame activating for them. They feel all the shame. Well, who wants to feel shame? So it's better to walk around and say, hey, I'm Superman. And so then you get to keep all that at bay. A person who may be, again, we're using this term, you know, codependent, a person who may be that or more have more dependency needs, as it were, is a person who, again, who might almost be too self-effacing, too willing to own up to things that, you know, that to what the word I would use is pathologize themselves to view them as sort of the the person with the problem. And the challenge becomes this is that for people who may be traditionally termed codependent, they have a real likelihood of engaging in self-blame. Everything's their fault. When you make everything your fault, it's actually a luxurious position in a way. It's very, very unhealthy, very unhealthy because it's not good for the person and it, and it makes them feel as though they're a bad person. I'm responsible. I'm why this person is doing this, right? When I say luxurious, what I mean by that is this person who feels so out of control in this relationship can get some level of control saying, if this is my fault, then I yeah. can fix it, right? Yeah. And so by taking away self-blame from a person, saying this is not your fault, in a way that's almost more terrifying, Because if it's not my fault and it's their issue and that can't be fixed, now what the heck am I supposed to do? What am I doing? Right. So the bottom's been taken out.
1: I still find it fascinating that they can't see. It seems like it just seems like one of those things that, I mean, have you actually seen many narcissists say I'm a narcissist? Mm Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's a good time to talk about the forms of narcissism because, you know, when I looked into this and when I started going, oh my God, um, again, it was like a lifeline. I'd watch a video of yours or something on narcissism and I'd feel like, okay, it's not real. It's not real. So maybe explaining what a narcissist is. And then the types mm-hmm. of narcissism, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a very big difference the way that a covert versus an overt narcissist mm-hmm. appears. Mm-hmm. Now, the mm-hmm. damage is probably very similar, but the, mm-hmm. um, on the surface, they're very different. And mm-hmm. um, so the covert narcissist, which is my experience, is super challenging, like very challenging very to challenging. see. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so what is a narcissist? Okay. And then what are the types of narcissists?
0: So narcissistic or narcissism or narcissistic personalities are characterized by inconsistent or generally absent empathy, um, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, superficiality, egocentricity, being very selfish, chronically seeking validation and admiration, a need for a lot of control over a situation, a hypersensitivity to criticism, difficulty regulating emotion, especially when they're frustrated or disappointed real challenges with intimacy in a close relationship. They, they're not, their their ability to have sort of the back and forth of a relationship is constrained by their need for, um, for their own needs to be met. So in other words, they almost view other people as conveniences to meet their needs and they're not able to sort of do the back and forth and make the sacrifices required by a relationship. When they set goals, they tend to set goals in the basis of what they think the world would like rather than what's meaningful to them and their capacity for empathy is really challenged because they're constantly sort of monitoring their environment for threats. That's narcissism, okay? The challenge with narcissism is there's a lot of subtypes of narcissism and they don't all sort of look exactly the same. Traditionally most of us think of the grandiose, what you're calling the overt narcissist. And grandiose narcissism is what is, is sort of the the sort of big, extroverted, attention-seeking, look at me, I'm so great, I'm at the center of the party, I'm the coolest, I'm the best, you know, constantly looking for the social media followers and likes, and that's, that's that person. Another form of narcissism, and a lot of researchers believe that overt or grandiose narcissism and covert narcissism aren't necessarily always two separate people, but they're two faces of the same coin. Covert narcissism is also called vulnerable narcissism. And it's characterized by all the stuff I talked about, but the way it shows is in a much more passive aggressive, victimized way. So instead of just being in your face, you know, "Uh, you're so stupid, it's, it's more like, Oh God, everything comes so easy to you. Someone like me who actually does the work, nothing happens for me, but you just show up and you get money. Like, ah, oh, must be so nice to live in your little world. And so I'm like, I think I was just insulted, but I think at the same time I also feel sorry for you. So I'm not sure what to feel right now. And they're masterful at that, maybe not intentionally. So when people are with covert narcissistic people, they're actually exhausted by the passive aggression. They wonder why. They ruin every party they're brought to, but they also feel sorry for them, and they often think of the covert narcissist as being anxious or depressed more than they think of them as being narcissistic because they're not the life of the party. Quite the opposite. They're kind of the sad hangdog person in the corner of the party who's angry at everybody and always looks like they're on the verge of getting into a bar fight. That's your covert narcissist. Now, the communal narcissist is a whole different animal. The communal narcissist is the narcissist who gets their supply by ostensibly doing nice things for other people. They give people money, they do charitable stuff. Look at me, I'm rescuing an elephant, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but they want to be admired for it. And they get their admiration by doing nice things for other people. And they get angry at people if they don't feel like they're getting enough admiration for it. So everybody thinks they're a saint, but the people who maybe work with them or are in relationships with them say, Oh my gosh, everyone's telling me I'm so lucky because they're so helpful, but they're such a mean person. There are malignant narcissists who almost feel psychopathic. They're very exploitative. They're very manipulative. They can be um, very callous, very cold. Um, They almost feel dangerous. Uh, they have all the stuff of the grandiose narcissist, but with a much more like Machiavellian like they know how to work a room They know how to work a system. These are people who often get to the top of organizations They're not quite psychopaths Which is sort of an entirely different kind of a thing out there, but they almost have that feel then there are the self-righteous Narcissists who are super moral and they're like I, I they, they they almost feel really loyal like they they'll, they're sort of almost feel ride or die But they're not really because everything's about how moral and great they are and there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things and they're very contemptuous of other people they almost feel sort of snobby and they're very judgy and so people find them like what is what is this like this person is not very nice so you can see then that these subtypes mean that people will say but they rescue all these elephants. I'm like, but they have no empathy. I mean, empathy for elephants is great, but you got to be empathic with everyone, not just people who are giving you supply or notoriety.
1: So at the core of it, it ends up being, is there a core to all of these? That, that,
0: that, that insecurity, the insecurity that has to be managed with all of this grandio- grandiosity, entitlement, things that protect them and get them narcissistic supply. So it's as though they are little empty balloons that need to be filled up all the time by people telling them that they're great.
1: Mm. The way I look at it is like the, 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 the little child that wasn't loved the way that they wanted to be loved or needed to be loved ends up being something they have to hide for the rest of their life because they realize that no, they they didn't get what they wanted with that per with that version. So that version stays hidden. And then it's this facade, this mask that they put out to the world. And so anything that gets close to like seeing like behind the behind the curtain or that little inner child tends to get, uh, it's like met with like, <laughs> it's like a sword, it's a bar fight, it's whatever. It's it's something to protect themselves from you seeing that inner child because they're essentially were told or believed to be, uh, believed that, that that version of them was not mm-hmm. lovable.
0: Correct. That's exactly right. And so there's a lot of shame activation around the fact that they weren't lovable. And so they do really, they do really unhealthy things to be loved, which is why we see a decent amount of um, correlation between narcissism and addiction. If it's mm-hmm. not a person who's going to love them, it's the drugs that's going to love them. They'll, you'll see them go through a series of partners. Mm-hmm. You'll see them cheat on partners. It's like mm-hmm. it's never enough. And so that never enoughness is that feeding that so they they feel like they're enough. And like you said, there is this real interesting association between the people who sometimes get stuck in these relationships who feel like they're not enough And ironically, the narcissist feels like they're not enough, but the narcissistic person is never going to admit to that. How dare you tell me that? What, do you think you are a shrink? Like you get a lot of that pushback. So that whole explanation you gave Danica, which is so loving and warm, a lot of people will do that with their narcissistic partner. I see your inner child. I want to love it. And they will become enraged that you did that kind of interpretation. And people will say, I don't get this. I see them. I want to love them. I said, this is... This is not your not on your time like they need to go through therapy and see what they're able to do and they're gonna to have to learn that their reactions matter and guess what? I understand their inner child is hurt, but this is a 40 year if you're a 40 year old adult or a 30 year old adult, you're not three. You got to grow up, people go through stuff and you got to get to the other side.
1: Do you find that they are, are they, they, do they tend to be stuck? Like in what ways, like I feel as though, uh, an indicator possibly of the sort of original wound is the reaction. Like how do they react? Do they react like a five-year-old? Do they react like a 12-year-old and that that can maybe kind of pull a little indication as to when, when the wounds happen. But, um, is that, uh, is that is that the case? like can you can you start to identify that through their reactions?
0: I think that whether you'd be able to pin the actual moment of the wound because so much of it developmentally tends to start at an early age, you might see worsening of some of those experiences, like for example, some of the more shame inducing experiences, people may have stronger memories of those into, like, for example, at the end of elementary school, into middle school, high school, like you have just more better formed memories, but a lot of the stuff may have happened. When they were younger, things they witnessed maybe couldn't even put words to. But what you the, like you said, the stuckness or the stuntedness is very much a part of the narcissistic personality style. They're very much caught in an earlier developmental phase, so they react like a child. That's why they throw tantrums. You know, they literally throw tantrums like a, a child would. And so, uh, you know, one would argue probably a narcissistic person psychologically more often than not is probably stuck somewhere between two and six. Is my guess and then you know and then you will see sort of adolescent behavior in narcissistic people like they're still carrying on like they're 16 when they're 50 and you know but it's still they're throwing the tantrums of a four-year-old and it's as though that it developmentally they're stuck because what is the work of being an adult it's about holding space for others at times holding back our reactions and people with antagonistic personality styles like narcissism are very reactive it's that dysregulation i was talking about if they get frustrated if they get disappointed, if they feel people aren't noticing them enough, then they completely, you know, they lose the plot and they start, you know, yelling and screaming because they're not that to them is intolerable, because they're not able to be in touch with someone else who knows they have a core wound saying, Oh, I can see someone's talking over me, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. This is reminding me of childhood. I've got to still find a new way to respond. And in my therapeutic work with narcissistic clients, the work is largely focused on. You got to stop, wait, and respond. And and, I mean, and I I would say still 70% of the time they get it wrong before they were getting it wrong 90% of the time. So we've made a little bit of progress, but depending on how high pressure the situation is, they will always react. And they'll say, can't the people know I didn't really mean it? I just had to get it out. And I said, no, they can't. That would be like me punching you in the face and saying, I just had to get that out. I didn't mean it. But your face still hurts. (laughs) Right.
1: Okay, well what are let's talk about the kinds of abuse because I think these are fascinating. And to me, this was these examples were my sort of uh, where the resonance was where I was like, oh my God, yeah, that happened to me. Things like, you know, stonewalling, like silent treatments or, um, you know, m- gaslighting, um, all forms of manipulation, crazy making. Like that to me feels like the most obvious one is where you just go. I, I, you feel like you're going crazy. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of go into this and hopefully, um, tap into maybe something that someone's hearing and 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 can go, you know, like ah, oh, aha.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's start with your most basic example there, which is the gaslighting, right? To have your reality denied. Gaslighting isn't something that happens once and you're all in, right? It's a grooming process. It t- it happens over time. And it requires you to be in a relationship that's characterized by trust or some level of authority or expertise. And a new relationship is an interesting example of that because if you're attracted to various elements of the person, how they look and who they are, and you really see that there's a possibility for a relationship, you want to trust them. And when you want to, or you already trust someone and they start gaslighting you, you don't go right to, they're gaslighting me. You, The first thing most people do when they're gaslighted is doubt themselves, like, maybe they're right. Maybe I am being too sensitive, or maybe I did read that situation wrong, or maybe I didn't put the keys there, or maybe that didn't happen, or maybe they weren't being inappropriate with that person. And that happens so many, it's not happening once or twice, it's happening dozens and then hundreds of times. When a person's gaslighted, they lose a lot of their power in a situation because they're spending so much time saying, huh, what? Uh," And you start thinking like, Maybe my memory's going. Maybe I need to see a doctor. Maybe I'm the one with a mental illness. Maybe I'm the narcissist. You, people go there. Now all of your time is sort of almost trying to get back your, get your footing back. The gaslighter is controlling you more and more oh, and yeah. more. Yeah, That's a really insidious process. And then before you know it, what the gaslighter does, it's an interesting trick. Let's say a person finds their voice and it's like, okay, I've got this figured out. I watched one of Dr. Romney's videos. I read something on gaslighting. I got this. And you say something like, you know what? Like, I don't like how you're talking to me or this, I'm not comfortable with this. You know what the gaslighter will say? Maybe you're not feeling this relationship that more. I get it. Like we've been drifting apart and they start threatening leaving. They play into a fear that ironically, even though narcissistic people and gaslighters don't like abandonment, they know it's the ultimate weapon. And now you're into the relationship, six, nine, 12 months maybe if it's new, and you say, I don't want this to break up. I wanted us to have a talk. And so you're silenced once again, because you feel like if I push this conversation too much, they're gonna feel like I'm pushing back on the relationship and they're criticized. And so maybe they're gonna want out. So maybe I am making too big a deal out of this. And you start gaslighting yourself. And then before long the person is almost just living in the gaslighted universe they may give up on goals aspirations they may talk to people less they may give up friendships they may give up all kinds of things in their life to live in the universe that the gaslighter created and so now to the world it looks like the two of you are exactly on the same page you're not on the same page you're almost like a cult member now you've been totally brainwashed and you're going along with the program because otherwise you lose the relationship which in my estimation would have been the best outcome but a lot of people aren't ready for that that's the process
1: yeah this is that's the sort of like what i would describe in my experience was the destabilization mm-hmm. like that's the destabilization mm-hmm. where you just kind of feel mm-hmm. like you're on your back heels and you're just mm-hmm. like oh you're just trying to hang on like you mm-hmm. don't quite understand what's going on you're mm-hmm. confused you know and yeah i mean that's that's a that's a destabilizing situation so um let's talk about um Like stonewalling or silent treatment then?
0: So the silent treatment is a very popular tool of people in narcissistic relationships because it is very manipulative, right? To give someone the silent treatment is very, it's very punitive. Because you are literally feel like you're now living in an alternative universe. There's two of you in the kitchen, and they're not saying a word to you. You're passing like chips in the night. You're standing next to each other brushing your teeth. They are saying nothing to you. This doesn't just happen in intimate relationships. It can happen in families. You may go to a family gathering, and people there's one person just literally they'll they'll say, "Hey, can you pass the butter?" And you're the one next to the butter, and And people will all be looking and someone's reaching over to get the butter because they won't talk to you. So it is very punitive. Now, think about what the silent treatment ends up getting them, though. What does it get them? You end up breaking and often say, I'm sorry. And they get an apology, usually for something you didn't do wrong, and they hold the power. So one could even argue the silent treatment is sort of like a satellite of gaslighting, but it's extremely unhealthy. It's very different for a person to say, listen, I can feel the steam coming up in me. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm going to go clear my head. I'm going to go do what I need to do. But then you come back and talk to the person. The silent treatment is punishment and it's a manipulation. And that's a common, common tool. Something you're calling stonewalling. It's similar to the silent treatment, but it's a little bit of a variation on a theme. Stonewalling is, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. We're not doing this again. Or just walking out. Because what they've said is, I'm not even going to permit this discourse. It's not, you know, and so now you're being told you don't get to bring up parts of your emotional world, a discomfort about something like that's all, you know, no fly zones. So now your relationship has all these little sort of marks on it where you can't go there because we're not doing this. We're not talking about this. That's stonewalling. Now, some people argue that narcissists stonewall because a topic is about to bring up their shame. So they just say, I'm putting a stop to this. And there are people like John Gottman who, who talks about marriage and has done probably some of the most comprehensive research on this. And to him, stonewalling is one of sort of the, you know, the death knells of a relationship. If you're engaging in stonewalling, you're sort of at the, you know, you're really coming towards the end. And then, Danica, there are other patterns like um, baiting. Narcissistic people love a fight. And so you're thinking, do. why do they say things just to get me worked up? I'm like, they to do. get you worked up. <laughs> yes. They do. It's so it's
1: like it's their it would be like their narcissistic supply. I feel like the drama, the chaos, the anger, the fear, the sadness that comes out of you is their supply. Like once that once there's no more reaction anymore, they aren't getting supply. It's like they just need energy. Mm-hmm.
0: They not only need, but they need energy, but they also need this, which is superiority. So let's say you generally well put together, they bait you and you're like, and you take the bait. Now you're like, "Ah!" You're, you're screaming and yelling. And now the narcissist actually calms down almost instantly. Your madness completely calms them down. It's like a tranquilizer for them. And they're like, goodness, my, isn't somebody getting a little worked up? You need to you, you're a little crazy. You need to calm down. And that's gaslighting. Because now you've been painted as this thing you're not, but you have literally been baited. So it's about training yourself to not take the bait.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can remember being in situations like, you know, having a reaction, they like going, oh, no, I'm not, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to react. And it's like, you know, even then kind of being mini manipulated or gaslit in a second, in a moment going like, well, why'd you react? And I'm like, well, cause if I, I mean, it's natural instinct, but also, you know, if I didn't, you would just go further. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. feels like also really one of the hard things too about narcissism is that, I mean, is there seems like there's kind of no, there's barely any limit to how far they'll go oh, yeah. to oh, yeah. get some reaction out of you. And they'll do, they do, you know, it's self-sabotage. They kind of know they're doing it too.
0: They, they, because they push the limits because they want the reaction because they need the reaction, right? Mm-hmm. The reaction helps them feel superior or like I said, it helps them. It feels like a relationship to them. And for a person who is sort of trauma bonded or even the term you're using codependent in a relationship, the chaos feels familiar to them too. So everyone's sort of going into chaos. And I try to explain to people, the chaos has no place in a relationship. And people will say, and they've been very frank with me in therapy. People say, "Gosh, without the chaos, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like love." And I said, "That's an old message you got, and we're gonna have to break that down." People say, "I'll feel bored if you know," and I'll say, "Bored is—it's not about being bored. I think that's the wrong word. I think that your core wounds are no longer being activated, and you confuse that with love. So we have to sort of change the whole script."
1: I want to talk a little bit about because this is where I feel like the real, true depth of confusion comes in, and that's through breadcrumbing and mm-hmm. you know there'll be moments where you're like oh they're you know like wow yeah and then it'll be so bad and then so whoa and then so bad and you're like you know you just live for like the moments where something good will happen or there's something nice will be said or eye contact will be made or some level of a meaningful conversation or something like that and you know sometimes it's not always sometimes it's more superficial but you know it still has some level of feeling like attention or something so breadcrumbing is I I feel like you know sort of the ongoing dynamic used to keep it to keep things going
0: so breadcrumbing is so interesting right because what to me also a big part of breadcrumbing is that a person learns to get by on less and less and less in the relationship Mm. like they came home for dinner i'm like is this a big winning moment in your relationship? Okay, you know, and so it's the um, they wrapped my Christmas present or something like something so small, and they they will talk it up. The person in this narcissistic relationship will talk it up to other people. You won't believe it. Like he came home for dinner tonight, or and and people are like well, they really set a low bar, and that's what breadcrumbing is. The bar gets set lower and lower, and whatever breadcrumbs are given become the basis of the justification to stay in the relationship. The, the other dynamic you're describing, Danica, is more of the Jekyll-Hyde dynamic, which is you've got this person, and this is where narcissism is such a tricky personality style because it's something I call alignment. The narcissistic person's having a good day and you're aligned with that, like you're having a good enough day too. It feels like you, you feel like you're in something that almost feels like a fairy tale, like they're so engaging, so smart, you know, charismatic. They really are. So you're like, wow, my God, this feels so good. But then when that alignment isn't met, let's say they had a bad day at work or someone said something they didn't like or someone made a post on their social media they didn't like, whatever little thing sets them off. You might be thinking, oh, we had a good morning, so of course we're going to have a good afternoon. And now you're looking at utter darkness. And you're, and then what do people do? They blame themselves. What did I do? What did I do? There's no fixing it because their wound got activated, their shame got activated. And at those times, you, you just can't win. And I think that backing and forthing between them are actually sort of being on point because their needs are being met, and then the moments when they're not, that they, the rage and everything and the disappointment escalates, people get confused by that. And the question is, even if you understand it, how long can you stick into something like that? How long can you... It's like living in a place where you go from 90 degrees to a blizzard in
1: half an hour. It's hard to dress for the weather. So another one that comes up every now and again is like word salad. That's another descriptor. (laughs) Tell people what that is.
0: So word salad is something when people experience, they're like, what just happened? And it's not psychotic. (laughs) It's part of the crazy making. I kind of
1: lop that into the crazy making. Word salad is part of crazy making where you get done and you're like, I have no freaking idea. Like, what are we talking about? I don't even know what just happened. Why? How is this my fault now?
0: Right. So word salad is, it's like when you think of the various vegetables in word salad, there are things like diversion, moving the goalposts, deflection, blame shifting, all of that gets thrown together. Word salad is actually a very clever gambit, and it also reflects their inability to regulate their emotions. So they get really worked up. And so you might bring up a point, whatever that point may be. You heard about something or I thought we had made a plan that we were going to go to this place by this time. Something very simple. By the time it's done, they'll say, oh, here you are asking me things again. You're always asking me things. And do you remember that time 10 years ago when you asked me that thing? And I did it. I did everything on time. And you tell me I don't. And then you spread things, rumors up. And you're like, what are we? You're right. What are we talking about? I just wanted to tell you, if we don't go to this meeting today, we're not going to get it again for a month. And you're now talking about things that happened 10 years ago on a vacation. That word salad speaks to the dysregulation, but also the incapacity for a narcissistic person to take responsibility because if they take responsibility the shame gets activated and so I'm not perfect right and so it's easier to deflect the blame onto you and so or talk about things that happened in the past to create some sort of bizarre false argument about why they're right or you've done them wrong and it confuses the heck out of people because then you if you don't know it's word salad you start falling into the salad too you're like wait a minute 10 years ago when we were on that trip and now you're talking about the trip 10 years ago that has no relevance to what's happening which is why danica I, I use this this technique i use with i talk about it all over the place. Is this technique called the deep technique and i tell people if you're in a relationship with a narcissist deep stands for don't defend don't engage don't explain and don't personalize So I say when a narcissist is kind of going at you, you have to think, go deep. Okay, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to explain myself. I am not engaging this and I'm not personalizing this. This is on them. And what it allows you to do is like, as you're thinking about it, because if you defend yourself, you're going to go right down the rabbit hole with them. Same with explaining and even any form of engaging. So you've, and and a lot of people say, well, maybe, yeah, 10 years ago, it's not relevant. We're not talking about 10 years ago. This is them lashing out at you inappropriately and just not communicating directly. And understand that this is their stuff. Don't make it yours. The crazy making.
1: (laughs) The stuff that doesn't make sense, right? Because when it doesn't make sense, I always say now, I'm like, if something doesn't make sense, I don't have enough information. And so, like, what it means to me in those situations, it's like, I don't know the core wound. Like, I don't necessarily know what happened. Like, why is this reaction coming out? Why is there confusion at all? Like, why can't this be clear?
0: Right. And so, But the challenge becomes, let's say you do know the core wound, okay? It is how many times you want to be on this carousel as it goes around. So, you understand the core wound. You know they're going to keep getting worked up every time this happens. So... If this was a three-year-old child, you'd be using some combination of timeout and consequences and all the things we do to shape a child's behavior. And yet this is an adult, so that's not going to work. So I think that the real tricky bit is when we have the core wound conversation, and as people are listening to this, I'm concerned people will sometimes say, okay, I'm going to figure out my narcissistic person's core wound. And no, that's you're not their shrink. They may have one, and this is why I am not a fan of people saying, going up to narcissistic people and calling them names. I don't want anyone to call anyone names. What I want people to do is set boundaries and say, I'm not doing this anymore. This isn't good for me. Frankly, it's not good for you, but you don't seem to care about that. But I think that when people really try to do that kind of work where I'm going to figure out what's up with this person, I say to them, you need to get your house in order. You need to figure out why you feel the need to rescue other people first. And once you get your stuff in order, you want to go and do core wound stuff with them, that's on you. But you don't get to do that kind of exploratory work with this narcissistic person in your life and making, you know, and cutting all this slack until you do your own work and understand you are worthy of boundaries. You are worthy of better treatment because I think then people still fall into that into that really, really problematic chasm of, I am going to rescue this person. I've got this figured out. I know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And I've been doing this for 25 years. So trust you me, you're not going to come up with this. And most people aren't. And they may end up wasting another 10 years. In fact, they'll get bad advice saying, well, you know, he had a rough childhood. And if you could just, okay, and they just in 10 years of their lives have now gone.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about boundaries. But one last thing I want to ask about and then... Ask if there's anything else from the sort of like the ways that were that the treatment, um, the forms of abuse. Uh, but there's one that I have a curiosity about that was a is like a, just a, a feeling. Is the, do since narcissistic personality disorder, narcissists in all forms, they they don't have the empathy and they can't feel. I wonder, do they learn from, learn how to act in situations based on um, mirroring people and also um, even from movies and things like that? Is that how they learn behavior?
0: Yeah. So they, they, remember, and I actually don't know that I agree that they don't feel. They feel. They feel actually really deeply. They just don't care about your feelings. So they're feeling, that's why you're hearing all this yelling and screaming and banging around and all. That's all feeling. They just don't care about your feelings. So they're not like people who would be more like what we call like schizoid personality styles, where there's absolutely no emotional, like they're completely restricted. There's emotion here. It's just a lack of interest in other people's emotions because theirs is so overwhelming. Remember what the goal of the narcissistic person is in a relationship, to get supply. Right. So if they want someone supplied, they meet someone new that they want to date or they're interested in or want to flirt with. They have a business associate or an investor they want to win over um, They're when they want something from someone or they want something to look a certain way, they know what to do. And this is what upsets and angers people in these relationships. You're like, they know what to do. I'm watching them do it with someone else. Why can't they do it with me? I'm like, because they don't want your supply. They want their supply and so they're not going to do it I'm like i'm not going to give someone a dollar for something i don't want to buy but i'm going to give it to someone else when i want to buy it that that's what that's how they are with supply and so you yes they know what to do it, this idea of mirroring though nails it because it's as though they know what like the pleases and the thank yous and the listening and the uh-huh or that sounds hard it's it's like putting on a show or putting on a play and it's actually falls into something we call cognitive empathy cognitive empathy is sort of the sort of like Splenda to sugar kind of thing. It's not the real thing and it doesn't feel or taste as good. And so it's more of the, um, it's the, it's the, it's the knowing what empathy is. Knowing like, ah, I'm supposed to listen to this person and I'm supposed to tell them I feel bad and I'm, or I'm supposed to like really tell them they're great. I'm supposed to, right? And so, and in fact, ironically, people who are narcissistic will often cry at movies but yet then you'll be in real life with them. You're like, this is like real pain, six inches from you. And you're crying right about a random person in a movie? Because oh, when when emotion is in their space, they're threatened by it because they don't feel like they can manage it. But when it's a story, remember, all, they do have a lot of emotion in them. That's a safer place to express it. And people mm. misread that. Oh, they cried at the movie. What a sweet emotional person. I'm like, no. It's cognitive empathy. Booby prize. Uh,
1: explain. I think this is also fascinating because there's such that initial part in a relationship with a narcissist that um, probably in almost anyone, but definitely more of a romantic one, where uh, you know the love bombing, and so you know this love bombing, devalue, discard, Hoover sort of loop. Um, I think this would be fascinating for people to understand, but especially that love bombing stuff.
0: So the love bombing is the—it's a grandiose show, often grandiose, but not always. And I'll explain the not always. But it's—it's a—it's this intense attention the narcissist will pay in the early part of a relationship. Frequent texting. Never met anyone like this. I feel a magical connection to you. They use this grandiose, non-specific language. Um, you're sort of swept away. It can feel very romantic. If they've got the means, they may send you flowers or gifts or come up with elaborate experiences. What it's all doing in a way, it's blinding a person to the red flags. All of this excitement's happening. You may be missing sort of that they sometimes are a little distracted on their phone or they're still doing some shady stuff or they don't show it showed up late or they're sort of rude to a person who valet parked their car or something like that, that you'll say, Oh, well, no, no, I'm overthinking it. Or maybe I'm the one who's afraid of commitment. I finally found someone who's paying attention to me and now I'm trying to find red flags. There's something wrong with me. And whereas I'm thinking, yeah, no, red flags are red flag. What's interesting is that the other thing that can happen during love bombing is there can be this really intense of like, tell me your deepest fear and they take, you know why they're taking all that? They're putting it in a backpack so they can use it against you. Exactly. And you think you're entering this deep, intimate space with someone. And you're basically handing them the knives they're going to use to stab you with. And then when you ask for
1: their deepest, it's nothing. uh -uh. You get nothing. It's nothing. Or they give you a falsehood
0: because then it won't Mm. hurt them if you did actually attempt to hit them back Uh with it. So... Another way love bombing can happen is they will present a very overly victimized story of their lives. Like, Mm. my life has been so hard. My Mm. life has been so tough. And rescuers will say, oh, my gosh, you need a place to live. Come move in with me. Or you need a car. Like, I don't always use my car. And before you know it, there's people who are actually now turning around. And covert narcissists tend to play that game a little bit more. Very victimized love bombing. And people feel like, I want to rescue them. And they really do well with people who are hyper empaths. So that's the love bombing phase that can last anywhere, usually for six weeks to three months. I've heard people telling me it's lasted for five years. I've heard it lasting for six to 12 months, but usually somewhere in the neighborhood, maybe three to four months is about average because that's about all they can keep it up for. Then once they, and a lot of people even be resistant and say like, oh, they're so into me. I can, uh, you know, I can even like, I could be chilling or I, you know, I don't, I can play this game with them. But then what will happen is they'll start losing a little steam. You're like, okay, I'm into you. And you move things too fast. Narcissistic relationships more often than not move too fast. People move in too fast. They get engaged too fast. They talk about marriage too fast. They travel together too fast. They move to another city too fast, too fast. And why? Because the narcissist needs to get you to the point where they can devalue you. Once you agree to them, they have, believe it or not, such low self-esteem, like, oh, if you want to be with me, you can't be all that, is actually probably what's happening deep inside of them. But what they have you is they have you where they need you. Your narcissistic supply is starting to get a little bit stale because you're not something they need to fight for. You're not feeding their ego. So now they may have a roving eye. They may be much more distractible. They may be much more likely to pull out your, point out your flaws. But at this point, a person still feels very much in love now they're justifying. Then we go to the discard. Now the
1: devalue phase can last
0: for years, to be honest oh, with you. Oh yeah, people.
1: that's all those forms of abuse that we Years
0: that and years. Gaslighting, that's right. the
1: manipulation, that's yep. the,
0: all of mm-hmm. it. Now the discard may or may not be a breakup. A lot of people think, does discard mean they move out? No, not necessarily. Discard may mean they go and have an affair and they're very much out of the relationship. The discard may mean that really they've become so neglectful they don't even know you're alive, like they just don't care. They don't care about anything about you. The discard may be you wanting to leave the relationship, ironically, because you've had it. But it's either a relationship rupture or it's you have been literally replaced and you're sitting there thinking like, okay, let's go to counseling since you're having your 10th affair kind of thing. And so that's discard. At the discard phase, either they've left, you've left, or there's been a split, but there's been a split. Well, now the narcissistic person who doesn't like abandonment and doesn't like not being in control, now you can start the hoovering process, which maybe the narcissist even went and had an affair or even found a new relationship. Well, you know, that's not going to last forever. Or they don't like the idea that you're moving on with your life. So you'll get that late night text. Maybe I'm just thinking about you or I miss you. Or you'll get what I always call the anniversary date hoover. Maybe it is your anniversary. Maybe it's a birthday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, some other holiday. And they'll use that of thinking about you on New Year's Eve. They'll use those as entry points. And those can often be lonely times for people that then starts the Hoover back in. And then the whole cycle starts again. Now, not everybody's Hoovered. And some people out there think, I wasn't Hoovered. Was I not even good enough to be Hoovered? I'm like, count yourself amongst the lucky. Be glad. Sometimes the Hoover happens five and ten years later where hopefully a person sort of moved on and healed, but um, but that's the cycle. And so, you know, I always say to people, if you really want to have like a fling with a narcissist, it's like eating the top off a cupcake. Go for it, just get out in six weeks, you know, and then you're out before there's been any damage and maybe you had a good time. But the longer you're in, the more the narcissistic person, frankly, is going to view that they need to control you. So if you try to leave during the love bombing phase, you're going to be either... Heavily Hoovered, or they're going to do a smear campaign on you. And they're going to speak disparagingly of you on social media to maybe mutual people you know. So there's really no winning in this. So, in all seriousness, you don't even need the top of a cupcake. The minute you see the red flags, get out while the getting's good.
1: You reminded me of sort of the um, smear campaign and mm-hmm. the flying monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are also important, um, to understand for people because there'll always be a cycle with these people, whether they're a family Um, member or a friend or whatever. And so I think it's some important aspects of the dynamic is just the things that they do afterwards or to keep their keep themselves um you know looking shiny and good Mm -hmm. and you looking bad and they say horrible things about exes or they say Mm -hmm. horrible things about Mm -hmm. friends or family Mm -hmm. or whatever it is um and um and also just sort of that um flying monkey sort of dynamic where there's people that have their back they kind of have these they have willing soldiers for the Mm -hmm. for the narcissistic mission to keep Mm -hmm. them keep them happy yep that's exactly right
0: and that that whole army of flying monkeys and that that what we call triangulation this creation of chaos turning people against each other they are masterful at that and so and a lot of people came from families like this too so it's easy to fall back right back into that triangulation swamp when it happens to you again and people are hurt they'll say i can't believe my friends fell for this I'm like, I hate to tell you it's a time to clean house because if your friend who knew you is able to fall for the narcissist machinations, this person didn't have your back. And while it's painful to mount up that many losses at the same time, I view it as cleaning house.
1: You know, I think that the 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 hardest thing after after the aftermath is the is the trauma bond. It's the it's it's the it's it's almost like it's death by a thousand knives kind of a Mm -hmm. life. Instead of it being just one thing to get over, it's like, so it's death by a thousand knives. You feel kind of like empty Mm -hmm. and um, your sort of self-worth has been sort of brought to an all-time low. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's the trauma bond um, aspect that feels the hardest to me. So do you have advice for people who are in this scenario Mm -hmm. to cope and, and next steps?
0: So the hardest part of the trauma bond is it's replaying out cycles from earlier in life, right? That the ju- Because when a child is, has a narcissistic or dysregulated or difficult or antagonistic parent, the child makes justifications for the parent because the child has no choice. You can't say, mom, dad, I'm breaking up with you. You know, you got you got to stick it out. And so the child will justify, this must be my fault. Maybe if I do this better, or sometimes the child acts out like they get into trouble. But more often than not, they blame themselves and wonder, what did I do wrong? Fast forward into adulthood, that same trauma-bonded cycle then lasts into adulthood. The same justifications they made in childhood for what was happening at home now is sort of normative in a relationship. Again, you keep getting into the same fights over and over again. You keep justifying the other person's behavior. There's a lot of self-blame. This has got to be my fault. All of those are very characteristic of the trauma bond. And then basically, the core of the trauma bond is love means rejection. Love means abuse. This is love because this is what love feels like. It's what you learned as a kid. And then as the relationship is slipping away, instead of a person saying, whew, this is great, I've dodged a bullet. Like I got to get out of here. It's how do I fight for this? How do I make this work? Because it's the the trauma bond is again, rejection is love. So I want to keep love. And so how do I work harder? And that idea of I'm going to pedal faster in a relationship is very much the trauma-bonded space. So in order to get out of it, Part of it is to understand this idea of how a person justifies. I often have people make a list, literally sit down and make a list, say, tell them, I want you to write down every terrible thing that happened in this relationship. And they're like, eeks. I said, I don't care how long it takes. And it might pop and make, you know, keep it on a place. You know, maybe it's easily accessible, a phone or whatever journal you always have. And then when you start feeling like you want to justify, I want you to go back to that list. And most people say, God, seeing it all in one place. That's a lot. I said, then I want you to make another list. I want you to make a list of everything and everyone you gave up on for this relationship. The baby showers you missed, the nights out with your friends, the old friends who are maybe of a that were making your partner jealous, the career opportunities you might have turned down dropping out of school. Make a list of all that so you can see how much you gave up and really think about that and what the ramifications are. And then the other thing I tell people is when you leave a narcissistic relationship, and I, I some people think this is extreme guidance, but I really hold to it. I want people to take 12 months off. 12 months out of relationships. I think you need a period of time. Everyone needs a period of time where these narcissistic relationships through the gaslighting so infuse us with the reality of another person. We need to get reacquainted with ours, or for some people, get acquainted with it for the first time. Keep that list very close at hand. When you say, I'm so lonely on a Friday. Open it up and recognize your average Friday night consisted of you being criticized or them showing up three hours late or them making fun of what you wanted to do or watch or how you looked. And all of a sudden that Friday night in your jammies watching TV by yourself feels a little bit more peaceful. Have that year. Go through everything in a year once. Develop your interests, your stuff. So the next time you meet someone, you're much more clear on who you are and what you're about and you're sort of doing that cleanly.
1: Yeah. I truly mm-hmm. believe yeah. that's such great advice and I truly believe that from my experience is that the only way that you can really know yourself is to spend time alone yes. if you're trying yeah. to exist if you're trying to know your true tendencies your true personality yeah. your true patterns your true feelings your true resonant state yeah. of energy um, but it's being alone that gives you the mm-hmm. most sight to yourself because you're like you wake up in the morning and you're like what am I going to do today right. I right. could right. do anything today and that is a lot different than going to work and then making dinner and then you know doing homework Mm -hmm. and that's not you and so i think that that time alone is incredible advice
0: but danica some people like you said you made a very important point some people can't get out of relationships whether for reasons of culture religion money um fear whatever their reasons are i never judge a person's reasons for having to stay in a difficult relationship you can still address the trauma bond you can do what we call gray rocking, which is being very neutral in your communications. You can cultivate other social networks that might be a, a support group, therapy, a community group you join, volunteering, friendships, you know. Uh, colleagues, whatever you have access to, recognize the trauma bonded person. People who are trauma bonded view their relationship as a one-stop shop. They need to be their partner, their friend, their therapist, their coach. You try to be people who are trauma bonded try to be everything to their partner. Realize that you really, I mean, figure out why you're staying. Be very honest with yourself. Like this is my culture and I can't leave. However, and, or and this relationship is and I'm being treated this and this
1: you know one of the things too is boundaries are one of those things where I feel like I always thought they were like for someone to do to me and uh I realized they were for me my own limit right there's a there's they're kind of similar but they're totally different orientation and so I I think that having boundaries is something you develop also by being alone because you're like you feel so good and then when something happens you're like oh wait no I'm not going to do that because it makes me feel bad instead of Mm -hmm. saying like I'm not going to let someone cheat on me it's like no I'm not going to get to the point where i feel so confused and question this relationship so much is my own threshold not some not for someone else to Mm -hmm. do to us correct um so well then i guess i'd finish up with you know what what if you what if someone is um you know if someone is in a relationship and they are stuck Mm -hmm. is there is there any advice for for this Mm -hmm. person is it
0: yeah I would say it's it is, it's painful advice and it is and I understand it can sometimes feel like an inauthentic sort of almost half life half lived. But I would say you have to have realistic expectations. It is better to know what you know, know what you're dealing with. Like it would be like living in Chicago and in February saying I'm going to go out in a sundress. I'm like, good luck with that. OK, it's it's Chicago. It's February. You need a coat. You're in a narcissistic relationship. You need realistic expectations of what's going to happen. So I tell people. You know, sort of remember sort of the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Never take your good news to the narcissist first. Always find the people who can receive your good news with, oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you and in a loving way. So when you finally take it to the narcissist and they kind of poo-poo it, you already got your, like you you can feel good about it. The bad news, never take that to the narcissist first because they're going to think you're inconveniencing them. They're going to get angry at you try to figure out other places for problem solving. I have a lot of clients who do that with me. They will actually bring those the bad news to me and we'll sort of problem solve together and they'll feel more at ease. Sometimes they have to tell their partner or their family member because they do, but they don't feel like they were they had to deal with the devastation of bad news and then get sort of hit again, if you will. And then finally the indifferent i said the indifferent is where the narcissistic relationship happens make a list of indifferent topics the the weather the freeway traffic the color of the mailbox across the street can you believe the neighbors made so much noise cutting down that tree like really neutral topics neutral need a list of them people say well that doesn't really feel like a relationship i said i never promised this was going to be a relationship you're saying you're in a place you can't leave and then cultivate those other supports. You know, whatever form that looks like, therapy, support groups, friendships, anything you can do. And in the pandemic, we learned to be creative with that, but find those other spaces so you at least feel somewhat supported. And some people say, I'm in stay when my kids are 18, that's fine. You know, it may be that you can, this might be a strategy for six years, 10 years, and then at that point, there may be the, there may be something else on the other side of that. Everyone has different stories, but what you and it all comes down to radical acceptance. Narcissistic personalities are incredibly resistant to change, and it is a unicorn if you think someone's going to have a big turnaround and one day become a warm, fuzzy, huggy bear who's totally empathic. You may get someone who goes through therapy and might be a little more regulated. May learn to be a little less contemptuous, but when the rubber meets the road and they're really stressed and frustrated, you can promise you that narcissist is going to blow up again. It's just radical acceptance, and then you're less likely to personalize it.
1: Great advice. Thank, Thank you, you so you. much. Thank you, Thank you Danica. So it was a real your pleasure. Work. I appreciate it so much. It truly was a lifeline when you, re- you. when I when I had those moments of being reminded, oh my God, it just wasn't real, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. it's all just yeah. a facade. Whether it was the love bombing or devaluing, yeah. it's, like, it's not mm-hmm. real.
0: Right. And I think for people to recognize it's so universal, then you realize this isn't some strange black hole only you're stuck in. You've got great company in there. So yeah, this is pretty universal. So thank you again. It was a real pleasure.
1: Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.